0: Their, prote- their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meetings to all the Israelites. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Tonight, uh, we're going to look at the, uh, the entire book of Numbers. Next Sunday morning, John Steiger from uh, Oklahoma Christian University, uh, president of that university, newly appointed president, is, uh, is going to be in town uh, with uh, some OCU business here in San Antonio and is going to be with us that Sunday morning. He's going to preach. For us that morning, and then next Sunday night we're going to continue the study of the books of the Bible by looking at Deuteronomy. Uh, tonight again is Numbers. Uh, we have about 36 chapters that we need to that we need to go through tonight. So we let's get with it. And does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need an outline. One. We have a couple. Uh, did we, Kevin? Did we run out? No, we've got some. We've got a couple left. We're going to start a bidding war. We'll go make a few copies. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, what a great day we have had. It's, it's so wonderful to come together and to feel each other's love and to feel the presence of, of, of each other's love and solidarity in the faith, to feel like we are in a body of believers, Father, and to be encouraged by that and, and to feel solidified in our faith and Your presence in our life. All of that is wonderful. But the greatest of these, Father, is that through your grace, you have given us opportunity to worship you, to to have our heart filled to the overflow with your presence among these brothers, among this brethren, these these brethren, in such a way, Father, that that we are we are charged, and and there is. Uh, uh, a stimulant to our our faith father to live courageously in this community we're thankful for this church we pray your blessing upon it at all time and we pray father that that in in the middle of this this era this this culture that is so full of opinion and so full of 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 pithy nonsense and 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 shallow superficial thinking father that we will allow your word to reside deeply, to to plumb the depths of our soul and our heart and our mind in such a way, Father, that, that Your wisdom becomes a wisdom to us in all that we say and all that we do and how we live. And so as we go through this study of all of the books of the Bible this year, Father, we're praying wholeheartedly and with full faith in the name of Jesus that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the statements that we always start off with, and we'll start off with it tonight very quickly. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, about man, about what went wrong. That is the introduction of sin, the fall of creation, and what God is doing to put it back together. Now, numbers. Numbers. Florence Littower said something very short, but a lot of times some of the most uh, wise statements, a full, chuck full of wisdom... Statements come in in few words, and Litauer says that after a wedding, there's a marriage. After a wedding, there's a marriage. Now in most of the weddings, there are vows that are spoken along these lines, forsaking all others, to have and to hold, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, until death do us what? Part. And the marriage begins when the two people kiss and they are pronounced husband and wife. And these two parties begin life trying to live those vows for the rest of their lives until death do, them, do they part. So it was with God in Israel. At Sinai, God proclaimed the covenantal vows, the Ten Commandments. This is the way that you are to live with me and to live with each other. And He, and he proclaims the, the Ten Commandments with this awesome splendor. And Israel enters into the covenant by saying, "We will do these things," and they build a house together, the tabernacle, and they start on the journey to the promised land. But what happens after that is disturbing. God, in a manner of speaking, brought his bride breakfast in bed every morning with manna. He hovered over her. That is the uh, the Shekinah, the glory of God in the cloud. He protected her from her enemies. He was a perfect husband to his bride. But she, in turn, grumbled about the food, said it was worthless, she's tired of it, complained about Moses' representative and kept saying that she would rather return to an abusive home that she had left in Egypt. It doesn't make sense. Especially in light of the way that you think about the task that is out there before them. God provided the only way for Israel to survive as a nation. God is the only way that Israel is going to be able to make it into this world. Egypt, had they gone back, would have ultimately smothered Israel's identity, if not annihilated her off of the face of the earth. Israel could not have even penetrated Canaan by herself if it was not God that went before her and fought the battles. There's not enough food and water in the desert for them to survive. It was either trust God or be annihilated and this would be a lesson in fidelity that was hard won. Now here's the story. Numbers is not only about numbers, but there's, there is a lot of numbers in the book, especially in light of all of the censuses that are taken. The book basically can be divided into two sections that very much parallel each other. The first 25 chapters is the old generation of rebellion which we're really going to spend most of our time talking about tonight, chapters 26 through 36 is the new generation of hope where the the new people that have been raised up in the desert learning to trust God day by day through 40 years of wandering through the desert are getting ready to go into the promised land. Now, here's how Numbers plays out. Chapters 1 through 10 deal with the senses of the people and the, the Levites along with preparations to travel to Canaan how the camps are to be arranged according to the tribes with the Levites in the tabernacle and the tent of meeting in the midst of the camp. There are instructions about the redemption of the firstborn and what all of that means. There's instructions about how the Kohathites and the, Gera, uh, the Gershonites and the Merarites, the, these are the sons of Levi, families among the sons of Levi, how they are to take care of the tent of meeting and the most holy things. And we're told in this book that there's about 8,580 of them to do this duty. Chapter 5 deals with sin in the camp, especially uh, sexual sin. And there's uh, towards the end of that chapter, deals with the, the water of bitterness and what that was all about. In chapter 6, we're introduced to the Nazarites and the special place that the Nazarites were to play among the people of Israel. And even Aaron himself, as a priest is instructed on how to bless the people in one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Old Testament. God says, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. So they will put My name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And then there are offerings of the leaders that are described. And the Passover in chapter 9 is, is talked about. There's the presence of God on the tabernacle as the smoke and the fire come down upon it. And in chapter 10... We come to the first the end of the first section of that that first major section of Numbers as the people set out from Sinai to the promised land. And then after all of this time, nine to twelve months at Mount Sinai getting ready, the most amazing thing happened. The people began to complain. In Numbers 11, verses 4, 5, and 6, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And God sends forth a wind from the sea which brings quail in by numbers that are probably unheard of anywhere else at any other time in the world. And this quail lands on either side of the camp in just mounds and mounds and mounds of, of quail. But as the people are beginning to prepare it and, and they've just gathered and hoarded all of the, the, this quail, the Lord's anger is kindled against them and the people are struck by a plague. And that place is known as Kibroth Kebroth, Hata'ava, which means the grave of those that crave. And then Aaron and Miriam speak out against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. And in Numbers 12, we're told something very significant about Moses. Moses was a very humble man. In fact, some of the older translations say that he was what? The meekest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. Now, being the meekest man meant that he was an incredibly strong individual, especially when his brother and his sister who is the one that saved him and helped prepare and put him in that, that, uh, that little boat of reeds that was found by Pharaoh's uh, daughter, when they begin to speak out against him, he shows incredible restraint. He is a meek individual. He is incredibly strong. And the base fallen human instinct for vengeance and to lash out and, and to, get, to, to get your you know, pound of skin back was muted in Abraham And in humility, He is the one who is able to pray and to intercede for those who are persecuting Him. In this case, to restore Miriam from her leprosy. Now we talk about meekness all the time. And and talk about, you know, blessed are the meek and what meek really means. Here is one of the greatest examples in the Old Testament of what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean to be weak. It means to have a sense of godliness, of, of godly strength about you that regardless of what other human fallen instinct might try to drive itself to the forefront of your thinking and your actions. It is that godly meekness that allows you to do the godly thing. But then in chapter 13, it's just another crisis. Israel has come to Kadesh Barnea. The twelve spies, one from each tribe. Joshua and Caleb are numbered among them. They're sent out to spy out the land and then they're in land for forty days. And they come back with a great report and with great samplings of, of the land. And they give a a fantastic report. This is, everything that God has said about it is true. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. But, we saw Anak. And we saw the Nephilim there, the giants, live in that land. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And there is no way in the world that we're going to be able to do it. And Israel rebels. And in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud, All the Israelites, what? Grumbled. They grumbled again. Against Moses. Against Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. And Israel begins to talk about stoning Moses. And God appears to Moses in the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 11, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? But you know Moses. Moses intercedes and the people are not destroyed, but they will not enter the land. They will not enter the land except for Joshua and Caleb. And they wander in the desert for 40 years. And this gets the attention of Israel, this pronouncement that they are not, this generation will not enter. They're going to wander in the desert. And this gets their attention and so they decide, hey, we're wrong, we confess, we're sinners. And they try to right that wrong by going and taking the land themselves on their own. But the Canaanites and the Amalekites beat them all the way back to Hormah. And then later on, Korah rises up against Moses with 250 leaders of the community of Israel. And the ground opens up and swallows the rebellion whole. And then in chapter 20, Moses' sister Miriam dies. But it's sadder yet because the people grumble again against God and against Moses. And this time it has to do with water. And Aaron dies at the end of chapter 20. And then that king of Arad hears about Israel coming and he goes out to fight them and and is utterly destroyed by God. And once again, the people grumble against God and Moses. You're beginning to get what the numbers are all about, right? It's not just the people. It's not just the Levites. It's not just the number of men that made up the families of the Gershonites and the Meramites and, and the Kohathites. But it's just over and over and over and over again, the number of times that Israel grumbles against God. And God sends fiery serpents among the people and they bite the people and they die. And the people come to Moses and plead with him to intercede on their behalf. And in Numbers 21, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And basically, the rest of the book is about a new census of the people and an instruction on how to proceed to the promised land, new instructions on how inheritances were to be divided out, the offerings that were done on the seventh month, how Israel goes to war with the Midianites and defeats them, instructions on the cities that the Levites were going to live on as well as the cities of refuge and what the cities of refuge were all about in terms of if you committed a, a, a murder or some some. Uh, some act of manslaughter, you had an opportunity to run for your life to that city of refuge until there could be a, a trial in which you were either condemned to die because of that murder or you were, uh, you were judged innocent and reparations would be made. But the cities of ref- refuge were put together there at the end of, of Numbers. Grumbling just happens to be such... that the, the people of Israel seem to be habituated with, with grumbling. And as you read it, and, and you read about all of the ways that God manifested Himself, defeated their enemies, how He was a faithful husband in terms of the way that He provided for Israel and was true to every word, the question is, what is it about the human heart that keeps us from doing the very thing we know is the right thing to do? I mean, we look at Israel and we scratch our head and we're wondering, how in the world, how over and over and over and over again do we explain the grumbling and the grumbling and the grumbling? And it would be very easy to say that had we lived in that time, we would have been one of the faithful, and yet we still grumbled even in our own age. What is it about the human heart that keeps us from doing the very thing we know is the right thing to do? I think part of the answer is this. Maybe the first half of the answer is that sin is not just an act, but it's a power. In a manner of speaking, sin is a suicidal power. We've talked about how sin is a predator and how sin as a predator wishes to master us and devour us. Sin is a, is a power, but it's a suicidal power where every time we sin, we diminish ourselves a little bit more. We sin in our thoughts. We sin in our thoughts and our rationality is diminished a little. We sin in our emotions and our affections diminished a little more. We begin to desire, we begin to yearn, we begin to hunger for all of the wrong kinds of things when we sin with the, the will, I mean, volitionally, the will is diminished and weakened a little more along with our self-control. Sin is an enslaving power. I mean, think back to Numbers chapter 11. Israel says, you know, we really did have a wonderful time in Egypt. It was great. You'll remember that this is the place where they were slaves. They were an oppressed people politically and economically and ethnically and spiritually. And yet, as slaves, they say, you know, we had it better in Egypt. We had free fish. And conveniently they forget that they were slaves to a nation that slaughtered their young boys. Whipped them made them make bricks without straw. Said, get after the brick making, but this time without straw. What rational person says, in that kind of a life for four and a half centuries, well, there's an upside. We had free fish. Somehow it all escaped them that if they went back to Egypt, they would be annihilated. Sin is not just an act. It's a power. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I mean, really, how is it after defeating Egypt and the Amalekites and providing manna and water in the desert that the people do not believe that they can enter that promised land? They're on the cusp of a promise made to Abraham coming true. God has brought them out of Egypt, has taken them to an austere, an august place on the earth where in the foot of a mountain they have survived for nine to twelve months being formed into a nation, and God has fed them and watered them and led them and protected them. And now, why don't we go back to Egypt? And it happens again in chapter 21. They speak against God, and they speak against Moses, and they call the miraculous manna worthless. I mean, the manna was a direct daily testimony to God's power and commitment and intention to take care of Israel. And what do they call it? It's worthless. In fact, in in the Hebrew, they loathe it. And probably tied to them loathing the manna was loathing God. It's an amazing thing. And then those snakes come, the fiery serpents, and the snakes bite them. And that fire gets inside of them with the fever and the swelling and the death. And here's the thing. They didn't even know they were sick until the venom of the snake got them. Not only is sin not just an act, but a power. Sin creates in our soul a deep dislocation. When there's a dislocated bone, I, there's, there is a lot of pain. And the way things are meant to be are not there. They're, there's displacement. There's, there's space where there shouldn't be space. There's tearing. And sin does the same kind of thing to our soul. The same thing happens in our soul at our core and at our center. There is a deep discontent that is insatiable. And and that's why people who have tasted all there is to taste of fame and a fortune and achievement and beauty are sometimes suicidal. They still hunger, hunger, and there's nothing left to taste. That hole is deep and it's profound and it's dark and it's unquenchable. It's really the serpent once again saying that God is not enough. That the paradise of Eden is not enough because God is not enough. And then that serpent one day approaches one in the desert. Another one in the desert. And he tells him, Why don't you, out of all of these stones, make some bread? And he tells the serpent that man does not live by bread alone. Not this kind of bread. Not this kind of bread alone. But we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you know what the temptation there is? Right after Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, the Gospels tell us that He was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. It is God Himself in the Spirit that drives Jesus out into the wilderness. It is God driving Jesus into the wilderness where He is in Mark's Gospel with the wild beasts. And after wandering in that desert, Satan comes to Him and says, if you've got the power, you can can take matters into your own hands. And out of these stones, if you're really the Son of God, you can turn these stones into bread. And so Jesus is faced with this kind of a temptation. It is God who has taken me into this desert. It is God that is leading me through these wadis and through these hills and leading me in His kingdom and leading me to do His will. Do I trust God who has led me in to lead me out? The Spirit that has taken me into the wilderness is this the same Word, the same God, the the, the same Spirit that can be trusted that has brought me in to be trusted to bring me out again. And then that same one tells His disciples that He is the bread of life. And He offers a socially outcast Samaritan woman at a well near Sychar who has gone there to draw water in the middle of the day that He knows she's thirsty and He can offer her a water or she'll never thirst again. That He is true food and will never, if you eat His flesh and drink His blood, metaphorically speaking, take Him in completely and allow Him to be your food that makes you larger. you will never hunger again. And then one day he's he's turned to his disciples and said, I, I need you to come to me if you're weary, because I'm humble and gentle, and I will not be a burden to you. And where those twelve spies went into a land flowing with milk and honey? and saw it and tasted it, and came back and in faithlessness said, we cannot take it. He's the one who in obedience to God and faith to God went to the place of God's forsakenness in order to lead the multitude into the place of God's benediction. And the meekest man who ever lived as they were driving those nails into His hand, said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who could have called 10,000 angels, but in the power and the strength of meekness, said forgive for they know not what they're doing. The Gospel is is not a a philosophy. The Gospel is not even at its core a doctrine. The Gospel is a fact of history. That Jesus of Nazareth lived and died to save us from our sins, was buried for three days, and rose on that third day. The first fruit of all those that would be resurrected and it is his sacrifice his his willingness in love and in obedience to god to take our sin upon himself that allows us to become that righteousness and he is the one who becomes our food and he is the one who becomes our drink and he is the one that is the savior of our soul and he is the one that gives us our significance and he is the one who is faithful the faithful high priest who intercedes day by day for His people, not needing to make sacrifice for His own sins, but because of His perfect sacrifice makes us perfect in the eyes of God. All of those regulations that we talked about this morning in Leviticus that makes us, reminds us that we're ugly, it is because of Christ and His righteousness being passed to us that God sees beauty. Brad will lead us in an in a invitation song right now. Some of our shepherds will be down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, we want you to talk to these shepherds that stand and praise God together.